Hi, everybody, and welcome to the best little horror house in Philly, the show where we talk about the best horror movie ever made, according to our guest, at least. And today's guest in the horror house is actually the person who introduced me to the movie we're talking about today, uh, Darcy Armstrong. How's it going, Darcy? Hi, it's going good. I forgot that I told you you had to watch this. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, this was entirely uh, your doing. And, you know, this movie has gotten a little bit of a critical reevaluation in the last couple of years, but... You're definitely ahead of the trend. You've been really putting this movie on your back in terms of spreading the good word about it. So I'm here to do that for all of Karen Kusama's movies. You're definitely no stranger to the genre. How did you sort of get into horror? Is this something that you've been into your entire life or is it a more recent thing? So the first horror that I remember liking, which I just listened to the episode about because it was I was so excited to hear it, was <laughs> The Strangers. I worked in a movie theater when that came out. So it was the first time I had seen a horror that I was kind of like, oh, wait, this doesn't have to be whatever horror was kind of when I was growing up, which was like 90s horror, which is a little different. Definitely. So I really liked it. Although I so I worked in one of those movie theaters that it was Studio Movie Girl. I'll say their name because I love it. I loved working there. Uh, it was a great job. <laughs> uh, but it's one of those ones where you like get served a meal. And so I was right. the server. So I was like, come take people's orders and stuff like that. And the thing about horror movies is that we hated them because they're always so short. And so you basically would just like get the pe- person's meal and then they would get their meal and you would deliver the check sometimes even before they were like really eating their meal yet, because it's like, wow. you only have so much time to get them to pay. Right. So that's what I really remembered about the strangers. <laughs> wow. Well, uh, a nice peek behind the red, <laughs> red curtain for us. Yeah. I've been in the movie business a long time. <laughs> hey, it counts <laughs> from there. I just, I don't know that I feel like completely fell in love with the genre until like, a little later, maybe when I was out of college and started watching more movies on my own more. So probably within the past few years. But The Strangers is the one I remember being like, whoa, this has changed my mind. Wow. Well, it's been really shocking to me to see the fan base that that movie has and uh, pretty heartening as well, because that was actually the first time I had seen that movie was for that podcast that I think I mentioned. And uh, yeah, it's uh, I've seen a lot of people coming out to to say that they like that movie a lot as well. So it's it's been good to hear. Do you find that because that's what flipped you around on the genre, that sort of slasher, uh, like tension kind of horror is your preference? Or as your love for the genre has expanded, so too has your taste? I would say so too has my taste. Uh, <laughs> but I will always watch a house horror. And I, I like to read horror is what I really like to do. I would say that is more of my thing is reading. And I love to read scary house books, but I'll always oh, watch yeah. them. I'll watch almost any horror, but I don't like anything that is just grotesque. So I, I, I'm not watching Eli Roth stuff. I'm sorry. Right. <laughs> no, hey, you know what? Sometimes I, I can get through them, but that's definitely one of my least favorite um, subgenres as well. I only just watched the Saw movies for the first time last <laughs> year. Uh, I, see, I see where you're coming from with those for sure. Man, my um, boyfriend loves the Saw movies. He Well, he's a big fan of the first three. Right. And I'll watch the first one and I won't go past <laughs> that. <laughs> yeah, those uh, they're a pretty quick downward turn in those movies anyway. <laughs> so, But we're not here to talk about the Saw movies. We're here to talk about a much better movie, in my opinion. 2009 Jennifer's Body, written by Diablo Cody, who also wrote Juno, which she won an Oscar for for the screenplay. 
and directed by Karen Kusama, who has also directed The Invitation, another movie that I, I know you're a fan of. And I actually haven't seen that one yet, but I've been hearing just great things about it. What? Oh, you gotta watch it. <laughs> I, know. I know. It's on, it's on my list. Uh, I have it uh, queued up. All I gotta do is hit the play button. So I'll have to make sure that that happens soon. This movie was filmed on a relatively cheap budget, around $16 million. But like I said, it's seeing a bit of a critical reevaluation. It flopped pretty hard um, when it first came out with just a $7 million opening weekend. And the domestic gross just barely cleared the budget. And it was sitting at a 47 on Metacritic, which is not very good, but we'll definitely talk about it more after we kind of go through the movie. But this movie was grotesquely mismarketed and misunderstood, not just in terms of being ahead of its time, quote unquote, because it was definitely ahead of where the zeitgeist was. But what it had to say is something that women have been trying to express for a long time and it's only now that people are kind of giving the platform for people to have a more diverse approach to movies and really kind of uh, endorsing that. So being able to revisit this with a different lens of this isn't a movie for dudes. This is like it's, it's it was marketed like a, a teenage sex romp and that couldn't really be further from what this movie is about. If you're tuning in to like get watch Megan Fox take off her clothes is not what you're going to get. Right. And that that is what it was marketed as, though, which is crazy to me, having seen the movie. It feels like they didn't even watch the movie before they started selling it just on Megan Fox's sex appeal. Do you have any any opinion on that? Yeah, I so again, worked in the movie theater and I remember that we had a big cutout for this. And it was just that shot it's the of her in the like Britney Spears outfit or whatever. And right. I was like, I'm not watching that. Uh <laughs> And I, so I didn't watch it until later because of that. But when I finally, someone was like, you got to watch this. I was like, okay, I'll do it. I think all three, like the Diablo Cody, Karen Kusama and Megan Fox have all come out and kind of said, yeah, it was marketed horribly. I know it really Mm -hmm. like affected Megan Fox in a really negative way, the way that it was done. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know. It's just, it's such a shame. And I think they've all said like, yeah, I think if this came out now, it, it might look a little different, but I think it would probably be a, uh, more of a hit. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. I don't think that much would have to change to update it. Maybe a little bit of the lingo. Yeah, they, <laughs> I did laugh they at a love things, a certain but, word. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, I, I definitely think that if it had come out uh, today that it would have seen a very different reception. We've already mentioned Megan Fox, who is the star of this. This came out right after Transformers. So she had i mean transformers certainly has a certain appeal to uh people who are into that kind of movie like it's it's just a brainless action movie in my opinion but there's a certain ingrained misogyny that megan fox is not allowed to be a good actor and also to be as attractive as she is people are pulling for her to fail because of this because they don't want her to have it all there's sort of a toxic instinct to denigrate the things that you can't possess And I think that that's something that's really challenging for a lot of people who kind of lash out at people that they don't know without kind of understanding where they're where they're coming from and what they've been through. And and so I think that Megan Fox, in my opinion, one of the better parts of that shitty Transformers movie. But people were just wrote her off as kind of another brain dead model who who was only in the movies to look good and not actually to to act. Um, I think that. 
she's kind of turned that around for herself as well. In recent years, she was really good on New Girl. She had a pretty extended role on that. She was in This Is 40, and she had a fun role on that. But I really, I think that the the time is right for her to kind of make a comeback, which I would like to see. So Megan Fox, if you're listening, <laughs> please come back to the movies. Uh, although she's doing the new Ninja Turtles movies as well. Oh, yeah. Um, which she- I haven't seen. I haven't seen those either, but yeah, I would I would like to see her in some put her in another Diablo Cody movie, like give her one of those ro- roles that like Charlize Theron is getting. I I right. think she could do it. I definitely think so. I think that she demonstrates the chops in this movie alone. There's a couple scenes in this where I'm really impressed with her performance in addition to like kind of having the aesthetic that they're going for with this character. I think that she really turns in a really solid performance. Her co-star in this is Amanda Seyfried. She's known for Mean Girls, Mamma Mia, First Reformed, which is one of my favorite movies from the last couple of years, and uh, a bunch of other stuff. And she's really great in this as well. And then you have sort of a litany of lesser male characters played by Johnny Simmons, who is... He's young nun- Neil. Yeah, Young Neil and Scott Pilgrim vs. the World. So he was he was the one who I recognized first. And the other two main male actors... Adam Brody, who plays Nikolai, is from The O.C., which I have not watched, but he was in Scream 4, which I have watched. And Kyle Gallner, who plays Colin, is in the Nightmare on Elm Street remake, which is the only place that I could have possibly seen him, according to his IMDb list, because he looked (laughs) way more familiar than that, but I didn't see anything else. So just one of those phases. Going into this movie, I mean... Wait, you're not going to say the other guy? Which one? Chris Pratt. Oh, yeah. Well, he's I, I mentioned it in my in my notes here. But yeah, he's in it for a very short amount of time. And he does a really good job of kind of capturing what I imagine Chris Pratt is actually like. <laughs> Pre-fame Chris Pratt. Pre-anything, really. Yeah, this is, I mean, before Parks and Rec or anything, which is kind of where he took off. So, yeah, he, he was still just a young, a young, young lad at the time. J.K. Simmons also makes an appearance in this movie. He's also in, uh, wonderful in, a, in his small role. It's still very fun. He's wonderful. He's a great actor, but I think the wig is doing a lot of the work here. <laughs> okay. I can't I can't disagree with that. It's like a whole nother character. <laughs> <laughs> but at the end of the day, this was a bunch of hot young stars. It was a rising screenwriter. And it, this is a movie that really seems like it should have been poised for success, but it was kind of poisoned by the culture and sort of a combination of the schadenfreude of wanting to see people fail, especially people who are on the rise. And again, that kind of um, toxic misogyny that's kind of ingrained into our whole lens of viewing movies and everything. So it's it's unfortunate, but you understand kind of why the situation that led to it not doing as well as as it should have. So I'm going to ask you, do you like when movies start midway into the action and then they're like, you're probably wondering how I got into this situation? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I love it, especially when they say you're probably wondering how I got in this situation. (laughs) Uh, I, I think it has to be done the right way, but I think it can be a really cool reveal. See, I usually hate it. But I that think that <laughs> I know it doesn't surprise a lot of people, <laughs> but I think that they do a really good job with it in this particular movie. 
it opens up with a really cool slow reveal of our main character, Needy. Her real name is Anita, but she goes by Needy, played by Amanda Seyfried. And there's a, a cool slow reveal where you get to kind of scope out her surroundings a little bit, but you don't see her face or really any of her. Then she's changing, so you see her scars as she's uh, like lifting up her shirt. You see a couple of scars on different areas. Um, and then it pans down. You see some nice fuzzy bunny slippers. <laughs> um, and then finally you get to see her face. And it really, I think, does a good job of kind of showing you who this person is. I've definitely mentioned this a lot, but there's a running trend that a lot of these good horror movies do a really excellent job of kind of establishing characters right up top. We also get to see her medical charts that report grandiose notions, hallucinations, and uncontrollable fits, noting that she has put several orderlies in the hospital and kicker is written all in caps and underlined twice. And they demonstrate this in addition to the writing. They back it up. She's approached by a doctor who goes to talk to her. She seems like a nutritionist or something. Uh, she goes to talk to her about her choice of breakfast, which is one toastum, which is the knockoff Pop-Tart, um, who says that she's, she doesn't think that she's getting her proper nutrition from one toastum. And and uh, Needy just kicks her, plants her foot into her face and kicks her like across like three tables. Like, I think that it's a really fun way of them to make you kind of root for this character who is not necessarily sympathetic right away. But because of that, she gets put in isolation and says, uh, I wasn't always this cracked. And so this is kind of what I was leading towards, because I think that. This is a good way of doing this sort of midway start because that hints at character development in addition to situation development, which is really what I'm watching a movie for is for this character development. Because if somebody is like, oh, wow, I'm being attacked by this person and things seem dire, but uh, you're probably wondering how I got here <laughs> and it cuts back. So all this time I'm waiting for them to get there. Anything up until that point loses a lot of the dramatic tension for me. But by making it the sort of midway point, her character development, instead of just the situation, I think that that makes it a lot more interesting to see the path. Does that make any sense at all? <laughs> no, it makes perfect sense. I agree. If you watch that kick and you don't think like this is a comedy, then you're not watching the movie correctly because it fully is just so funny and sets up that like, oh, this is going to be a funny movie. I do a lot of comedy writing. And one of the main things I do is write character monologues. And the best thing you can do in a character monologue, the one thing you want to get out of every character monologue is a turn. And you want to have them just take their perspective and turn it in some way. You want them to have a, you want them to have a triumph. You want them to have a realization, you know, some, something like that. So what you're saying is exactly like, that's what the writer is trying to do. Well, there you go. I hit the nail on the head and didn't even know it. <laughs> so she says, I wasn't always this cracked and we get flashback here. I forget exactly what the time jump is, but it's not an insanely long amount of time. She starts telling us through this voiceover narration about the town of Devil's Kettle. And it's named for this waterfall in the town that when you put something inside of it, it sinks down and then they, they never are able to find it ever again. They don't know where it lets out or anything. I, I love that shot of them just tossing things in there. Oh, yeah. They just like throw a bunch of red balls in and then like shrug <laughs> when it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't come out. 
It's very funny. I really connect to the Devil's Kettle thing because growing up, I read a lot of the magazine Weird New Jersey, which is very specific, targeted at weirdos uh, magazine in New Jersey that just talks about like, hey, did you hear about uh, this friggin' crazy thing that one guy who was drunk saw, quote unquote, in the woods one time? And they would always talk about like supernatural phenomenon like the devil's kettle that, you know, if you say a prayer at midnight and dive into it, then you'll sell your soul. And it's just like all very dramatic stuff. But it really kind of put me in the mindset of that kind of campy, over-the-top dramatic atmosphere, which I think is uh, really beneficial to watching this movie. So I think that's what they're going for. Oh, for sure. And then Needy's like, well, I mean, I wish it was cooler. It's just like a little waterfall. But (laughs) she's telling us about the town. There's this fun thing with the devil's kettle that she doesn't appreciate, but I think is a a fun time. (laughs) And then we see Jennifer. Jennifer is played by Megan Fox. You see on her wall that she has posters for Fallout Boy and Gallows. I did not recognize <laughs> Gallows, but apparently they're an English hardcore punk band formed in 2005. So they do the legwork. <laughs> I'm sure they're very good. Yes, I'm, I'm sure. I, I have an affection for Fallout Boy, I will say. Um <laughs> This is this. I, I grew up like right in the perfect time frame to be around the same age as, as the characters in this. Came out in 2009, so I was 16 when this movie came out. <laughs> um, so I was like, like listening to this, uh, all the music and the soundtrack. I was like, yeah, this movie's soundtrack kicks ass. <laughs> and uh, and Fall Out Boy is no exception to that rule. So I approve of Jennifer's taste in music as well. She's sitting there reading on her bed. You get another classic horror shot here because Needy walks through and she's staring in the window. And again, through voiceover, she basically says, we were our yearbook photos, which I think is a really clever way of establishing a lot of characterization just through cliches. They do like a couple quick cuts of their yearbook photos. Needy is working for the newspaper. Jennifer is on the cheer team. Needy's boyfriend, Chip, is in the marching band. So all of the ideas that I have in my head from being in high school and watching all kinds of movies and stuff, all of those kind of cliches and characterizations that you have associated with these things immediately get rolled up into these characters. And it's a quick, it's a really interesting way of covering a lot of ground at once about three characters, which I think is is a really incredible job that the writer did here. So good job to her. Yeah, and they're also kind of setting them up as horror stereotypes, too. Letting you think that they're, you know? Right, right. You have to establish the tropes so that you can play against them later. Mm-hmm. Also, I noted that the song that's playing over this uh, section of the movie is I'm Not Gonna Teach Your Boyfriend How to Dance With You. A song about jealousy kind of sets the tone for the whole movie. I was like, wow, look at that. Every little piece <laughs> is working in tandem here synergy (laughs) one other thing that they're doing right away that i think is really interesting and you can tell me if you agree with this is that it seems to me like they were using a lot of sort of the film language of teenage rom-coms like a lot of the shots feel like just a typical high school movie instead of a horror movie kind of creating again that atmosphere that and the tropes that go with it so that they can play off of that and break those rules later Oh, absolutely. I think they're doing that. One of the things I did want to bring up was the cinematographer for this is M. David Mullen. And I think he does a really good job. He just did The Love Witch. Have you watched that? No, I don't think you have, right? 
No, I haven't seen that one yet. He won his Emmys for The Marvelous Miss Maisel. <laughs> so I was like, oh, oh wow. uh, knowing those two things, I think it makes a lot of sense. The yeah. beginning shots of this movie and also some of the later shots of this movie. Definitely see that. And he, he does do a really good job with this. This is the thing is that it seems like in addition to really strong writing and directing that they got a lot of people working on this movie who did a really good job in the other sections of the movies that sometimes go overlooked in in favor of other areas. They're like, oh, this song is fine for this part or, you know, we're going to use just just do a wide shot here. But this person, the person who put together the soundtrack thought about what this song is saying about the movie. The cinematographer thought about what language of film they're using and, and what they're saying about the way the movie is going to go by filming it like a teenage rom-com or something. It's, it's just one of those things that really kind of lets you know that this is a high quality movie um, all around and not just one particular strong category that kind of makes up for uh, other areas that are weaker. They're using this kind of teenage rom-com language to not only make it feel like it's there in high school, but they kind of create a sexual tension between Needy and Jennifer right away. This definitely comes into play later, but the movie itself comments on it with someone sitting next to Needy says, you're totally lesbian in reference to Jennifer. That's one of those lines where I was like, oh boy, that feels very slangy, which is definitely kind of the style, but it does kind of date it a little bit. It's kind of of the moment filmmaking which helps it feel authentic to the time. It's just one of those things that you have to kind of get over when you're watching it at a later date. You know, it's been 10 years, so not every slang term is going to hold up, but that's part of creating, I think, an authentic lived-in world is making it so that people are speaking the way of the time, you know? I Yeah, uh, absolutely. I just watched Mean Girls three times, and <laughs> even though this came out five years after Mean Girls, I think, it's still, it reminded me, and because they're both high school movies, I was just like, oh yeah, that is absolutely something they would have said in right. Mean Girls too. Speaking of, one of the lines that moves the, the plot forward, but also just felt very of the time is, Low Shoulder is playing at Melody Lane. I checked out their MySpace page, and their lead <laughs> singer is extra salty. <laughs> I just... I literally like had to pause the movie to make sure that I got that quote exactly right and just cackle about it. I thought it was really funny for our younger listeners. MySpace page was uh, the thing before Facebook, um, but after Friendster. So <laughs> she kept saying salty. She kept saying things people were salty, and I was like, this was never a thing. Right. It it, it kind of feels like in Mean Girls, like the, yeah. the fetch where she's like, stop trying to make salty happen. <laughs> So she uh, Jennifer says that line to Needy. She's interested in in dragging Needy along to this concert. Needy says yes and gets told to wear something cute, which leads into how specific Jennifer and Needy's relationship is. Um, I think that the movie explores a lot and is really interesting because it's not really something that I have a ton of experience with. This sort of friendship feels I don't want to be like, oh, it's a girl thing. But it, it definitely feels uh, more like a girl thing than I've had experience with. I was reading somebody else's critiques of this movie. They were talking about in the face of 
the power imbalance of the patriarchy that oftentimes women have to cut each other's throats and get put up against each other in order to raise themselves up a little bit more in a system that is structured to keep them down. And I think that creating this insecure friendship where somebody who is more conventionally attractive but insecure about whether they're just being used for their appearance or something and somebody who kind of likes the social acclaim of hanging out with somebody who is maybe more attractive than they are even if it's just that they feel that they're more attractive than they are but that they get taken advantage of by this friend is this something that you've seen before like does it sound like i'm talking out my ass right here or what (laughs) I think it's kind of twofold. I think there's a kind of the trope of like the catty women fighting. Right. You know, like that's how women are or whatever. And there's also the truth to that, which is what I think this exact sequence of like her being like cute, but not too cute is kind of exactly what the movie is eventually trying to say, which is just like a female friendship can be toxic and it can be its own thing and it's definitely affected by the way that the patriarchy moves through our lives and I don't know I think I have had friendships that do resemble this but I've also had friendships that absolutely don't maybe my I mean my better friendships absolutely don't resemble this Uh, I don't know if I would say it's a woman thing as much as I would maybe say it's like I don't know it's maybe a femme thing (laughs) (laughs) Definitely think that it's an interesting conversation that's brought up by this movie and really impressive that it's even willing to kind of bring that up, especially in 2009. Just something that makes this movie really interesting to me. We don't Um, often get movies about female friendship and we don't often get movies that about female friendship that like really dive into and let the, and let them be complex, you know. Right. We are all, we get Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, a great movie, mm-hmm. but <laughs> not this movie. And I, I think that that's a really great point. I was looking at some of the other horror movies that this kind of reminded me of in terms of the way that it's focused on women and dives into the friendship between young women as well. And both of the two movies that I immediately thought of, which were The Craft and Ginger Snaps were both directed by men. So I I think that this is really in kind of a unique situation where it was written by a woman, it was directed by a woman, and you have two women who are giving great performances kind of lending the depth to it. So it's definitely a unique movie just on that front. And you also get great jokes. Like, so Needy is talking to her boyfriend Chip about how Jennifer is, she, she doesn't like the drummers, she likes lead singers. And Chip is, in fact, a drummer. So she says, don't worry. She might go for a drummer if he's also the lead singer. He says, oh, like Phil Collins. She says, who's Phil Collins? And (laughs) and God, this line made me feel like I was watching Scott Pilgrim again. But he he just goes, forget it. I mean, he's seminal, but whatever. (laughs) It's just, it's a great line. Shout out to Phil Collins, a great drummer and singer. So Chip also brings up the point that Needy always does what Jennifer tells her to do. And she says, no, I don't. We just like the same things. Uh, We have stuff in common. He says, you guys don't have anything in common. And she just scoffs. But based on their interactions so far, 
it seems like Chip is kind of onto something here. Jennifer certainly does not like Chip, so there that's something that they definitely don't have in common. <laughs> something that comes up a lot is that Needy is much more uncomfortable with just like talking about sex than than Jennifer is. And she kind of holds this over her. It feels like sometimes when she's feeling like she wants to kind of twist the knife a little bit or something that she'll bring this sort of thing up that Needy is uncomfortable with. It's like Needy says, uh, sandbox love never dies. And so this is someone that they've they've grown up together and they've been around each other their entire lives. And so it's a comfortable friendship. You're friends because you've been friends. And it's like slipping into uh, comfortable pajamas where you're like, oh, this is something that's been around me my entire life, and that's why I like this thing, as opposed to necessarily being like, oh, I am genuinely a fan of this person. <laughs> so just something to think about, in my opinion. No, I definitely um, think that they were like, they're kind of mean to each other, both yeah. of them at different points, and you're just like, oh, come on, <laughs> just be nice. Um, yeah, it's, it's true. It's, it, there's a lot of kind of just sniping at each other. Yeah, which you um, do, I guess, with people you love, but usually in a friendlier way. It's all in the tone. <laughs> yeah. There's some more great dialogue here where Jennifer goes, guess who's got the whip until 1130, 2003 cut Chrysler Sebring, and it's all mine. <laughs> um, that's a car that's already seven years old at that point. So you're it's like it just really it, it makes it feel very real to um high school again because it's just like oh yeah if i got to drive my parents car it doesn't matter if it's a couple years old i'm hyped so it, I it's just cruise around in my dad's ford ranger there you go so well so you did actually have the nice car. <laughs> <laughs> yeah he still drives that it's from Hell the yeah. 90s <laughs> <laughs> um but Jennifer and Needy drive off in this Chrysler Sebring. They head to Melody Lane, which is just like the grodiest dive bar. <laughs> I was I was talking to someone recently and I was like, I like a fake dive bar where people are there to drink, but also no one actually is looking for any trouble or anything. <laughs> so, this bar looks like you would bump into someone and get into a fight. So I love when she says we're going to the club and he's just like no you're not <laughs> yeah the club this this uh, bar could not be further from a club but in this one horse town as it were you call it the nicest thing possible to you know make yourself feel ba- better about it i grew up in a really small town as well so i definitely relate to pretending things are nicer and bigger and fancier than they are this is where we see chris pratt himself i think that this again does really a nice job of capturing the small town vibe he uses a gay slur and then it kind of just i think that it does a really interesting job of offsetting this stars in her eyes approach that jennifer has about this band from the city and oh my god isn't that it's new and it's it's bringing a breath of life does a good job of focusing and talking about that appeal of anything new and different compared to this kind of small town vibe. Did you grow up having like a uh, the city? I grew up right outside of New York, so we definitely were like, oh, that's that's the city, and and you know we're gonna. My parents are going into the city for the weekend. Is that something that you had as well? 
Yes, I grew up about 45 minutes outside of Houston, so Houston was the city, and as soon as I got my license, we would drive down and go, I used to, this will appeal to probably only you, but I used to drive my friends and we would just go see whatever was at the Angelica, you know, and like, probably that was also playing close to us, but we were like, no, we're going to the art house theater. Right. (laughs) It was just very, yes, we had a city. You you feel grown up especially like doing that as a high schooler when you're like oh I'm old enough to go into the city by myself and I think that they they do a good job of capturing this as well and offsetting that Jennifer is like I am interested in sleeping with the lead singer I'm gonna go get some drinks for me and him and you hang out here Needy kind of goes off to the side here and she hears a little bit of an exposition dump, but it's it's like done in a way that feels really fun and refreshing. The lead singer is dumping this exposition on the bassist, and he says, oh, we're looking for a virgin, and Needy thinks it's to have sex with the, uh, the virgin. We find out later this is not the case. But the bassist pleads with it. Like he stops the lead singer and says, hey, man, I'm not just the guy who plays bass. I'm a person with feelings. And... <laughs> Even just that little line makes these characters feel way more well-rounded than they would have if, if it was just a sounding board for him to talk about this exposition dump with. That's something that I really admire about Diablo Cody and the way that she writes her characters is that every little character doesn't feel like they're coming in just to kind of move things along. They feel like people to me, which is definitely something that's hard to do. And I, I think that this particular exchange does a really good job of that in just one sentence i agree you did you have not said my favorite part of this scene though which is the drink that megan fox goes and gets <laughs> oh what i forget the name of it it's but the, i wrote it never forget the 9-11 shooter <laughs> she goes we have an awesome 9-11 shooter and she says that it's red white and blue but you have to drink it really quick because otherwise it turns into kind of a gross brown yeah you're like oh yeah i know exactly the kind of drink that she's talking about where it's 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 purely a gimmick (laughs) it goes to get so gross right away she's upset that tower two is not completely full (laughs) again that small town vibe where it's eight years later since 9-11 and while certainly we should never forget the way that small town Americana can sometimes latch onto an event like this and really kind of make it part of the town's whole vibe definitely is coded in this movie as well. Yeah, and it just made the it made the bar feel more real to have yeah, one of sure. those. Because every bar does have like, oh, is the, we're going to toss a drink in your face or whatever it is. Right. <laughs> it does make it feel more real for sure. He's doing this exposition dump saying that they're looking for a virgin. Needy thinks it's so that they can have sex with her. And she uh, confronts the band and says, you know what? She is a virgin, but it's better than sleeping with creeps like you. She goes to talk to Jen and be like, well, you shouldn't hang out with those creeps. They're fucking weirdos. And Jen not only denies being a virgin, she says, I'm not even a backdoor virgin. <laughs> and it's it's just really funny because, again, she's just very upfront and frank about this sort of sexual experience that she has when clearly Needy is very uncomfortable with it. Uh, she's like whispering about it and i wouldn't say she's yelling but jennifer is certainly not trying to keep her voice low either she's had sex plenty of times before on the way in 
she gets hit on by one other person and Chris Pratt implied that she slept with him as well. So she's definitely more experienced than Needy and kind of just setting them up as these two entirely disparate characters. They're doing a lot of really great work in this movie, setting up these comparisons so that you can understand the changes that, that everyone goes through. I think that it's really impressive. I mean, we're not far into this movie at all, and they've already done a really good job of establishing not just our two main characters, but the town itself feels really real and lived in. Low Shoulder starts playing at this point. It's sort of your typical late 2000s power pop sort of stuff. And while it's playing, uh, Jen holds Needy's hand. There's, again, sort of this sexual tension there. But they stop when uh, Needy notices a speaker spark and it lights the bar on fire. Now, there's there's always kind of this kickoff event. But to me, it, this scene is, was shocking when I saw it the first time because – Everything else has been, you know, relatively uh, light, but this scene is brutal. Uh, I wrote down, this is some Final Destination shit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) the the fire, like, crawls so far across the ceiling, (laughs) and then people are getting trampled and stepped on. There's people, like, cowering as flaming flags drop down around them. The foreign exchange student gets an entire support crossbeam dropped on him. People are aflame as they run out the door. It's like really serious. And I feel like it's presented comically, but also very seriously at the same time where you're like, wow, people are really getting hurt and there's a panic happening here. Yeah, it feels Uh, very real. Yeah. When you saw this the first time, do you remember if this kind of quick turn surprised you at all? I mean, at the very, very beginning, you you understand that she's in jail, so it's not entirely puppies and rainbows, but this does feel to me like a pretty serious shift in the tone. No, I, I think I kept expecting everyone's going to, like, get out or, like, I don't yeah. know, but it's not, and it's really, yeah, it's terrifying, it's a big fire, and also... Jennifer is clearly in shock after it. Full on shock. Needy kind of gets her out of there and she wouldn't have moved. Yeah, she like she has had. to drag her pretty much. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was a very like I liked that depiction of her because so you know, it's like that's really what sometimes happens. It's like, oh, this is a terrifying thing. I'm just gonna stand here. Yeah, she she's definitely in shock. In what is a really upsetting part to watch the band who was talking about jennifer uh comes over and basically absconds with jennifer kidnaps her and and takes her into the van needy is she's upset about it and she's trying to tell jen not to go but jen really wants to get out of there and so she goes with them and she's like needy come with me and needy does not go with her and the band just kind of leaves with Jennifer. Watching them kind of walk away with her was, it's like just very unsettling. It feels, like I said, Needy assumes that they're talking about how that they need Jennifer because they're looking to sleep with her. And even if that was the case, what just happened here is gross and upsetting. <laughs> but we know that that's not, that's not even what they're trying to do. And it's, it's even worse than that. So I think it's easy to kind of put yourself in the shoes of needy there. And, you know, having been to parties where people are kind of just willing to go wherever you tell them to, when you're like, Oh, come on, we need to go home. And they're just like, okay, I'm just following you. Like wherever you take me, I'm going to go. This really feels like a gross kind of breach of trust, even though they don't know each other. So (laughs) it reminds me of all the times I've been like, 
to my friends being like, no, yeah. you're coming home with me. Yeah. And sometimes they don't, they don't want to, but yeah, it was, they're very clearly taking advantage of her in that situation. Mm-hmm. And Needy calls her boyfriend and she says that she came home. She's like, oh, I just got home. She drove the Sebring back. <laughs> um, she calls her boyfriend. She says uh, she's telling them about how Jen got into the van. Um, she's very upset. But while she's just walking around, she says she hears someone outside. We see a shadow pass behind her. Very classic. Very creepy. Very <laughs> scary. Like, yeah, I was like, all right, here we go. We're getting into the, <laughs> the, the classic horror tropes here. And Needy wanders around the house a little bit looking for what's going on before Jen appears behind her, bloody and dazed in the kitchen. This was the first real indication, I think, that Megan Fox was really, she was giving a real performance here. Up to this point, she is very much like just your classic, like you said, she's a mean girl. She feels very much kind of of that trope, like that archetype. But she, in this moment here, is so scary to me. She gives this insanely creepy smile. She's bloody and you don't know if the blood is hers or not. And she just opens the fridge and tears into a chicken. Now, this is, I, I mean, I, I assume that this is a, a shocking scene to you as well. Um, this, this smile reminds me of Elizabeth Moss in Us when she has, you know, when, or like the tether. Oh, yeah. That's what it reminds me of. That just like creepy, you know. Yeah, it's like she's like looking through you. Yeah. And smiling past you. It's very, it's very scary. <laughs> but... As Jennifer is eating this chicken, there's another really uh, hilarious line to me where Needy very softly is just like, um, my mom got that at Boston Market and I'm not supposed to. And Jen just lets loose this unearthly howl at her and then vomits up this crazy black liquid that like spikes up on the ground and just this crazy sequence of events is so funny to me and it feels like you're gonna get whiplash from the way it's going back and forth between these really funny scenes and like genuine scary imagery and stuff that's happening but it's it's all really great stuff the dialogue is funny this howl that she kind of unearths on people it really reminds me of in the thing one of the men who's been half assimilated and like wanders out into the cold to die he has like a, a, a half formed hand and just like howls at the men who've surrounded him and this very much feels of mind with that where it's like she's not human anymore at this point it doesn't feel like no and she's trying to eat the chicken you know we don't know but it's like oh she doesn't need chicken that's not what she needs <laughs> <laughs> right she throws up on the ground then throws Needy up against the wall and she kind of feels her up a little bit and brushes her lips against Needy's neck and then throws her again and leaves. And again, there's just kind of this sexual tension between the two of them where it feels like it's simmering under the surface that this is is something needs to come to a head with this. The way that Jennifer is throwing her around and then and then like coming on to her and then lashing back out and throwing her again kind of feels like maybe that's the uh, representative of her emotional state at the moment as well where she's reaching out for needy but she's insecure and and all all kinds of stuff i think that uh, can be looked at on another level there it's just it's nice work all around in terms of the writing and the performance um i think she's like 
do I want to what do I want to do to needy and she doesn't know right. and then she's like well trying also trying to protect her in a way too which right uh, yeah so I think yeah she's again doing a great performance here yeah it's just it's it really feels like a complex character it doesn't feel like someone who's written just as like a sex object which is not only kind of the the on-purpose characterization at the very beginning but definitely is also the way that it's presented in the promotional materials just kind of representative of the whole issue uh, surrounding this movie at large in my opinion it cuts to the next day at school classmates are discussing the fire and the rumors that are kind of swirling around it and needy is just kind of sitting there in shock you flash back to her and jen in the sandbox um and even back then jennifer is making needy be uh, the ugly doll she pricks her finger on a little thumbtack which is very careless of <laughs> whoever put that there i don't know how it got out there but someone needs to be more careful so she pricks her finger and she says needy you can't tell my mom because she'll make me get a shot and needy says that i'll never tell on you which again just very representative of the way that their relationship has progressed or rather not progressed (laughs) yeah it was very cute and also that part i yeah i related to that part i was like oh we do build our friendships at such a young age, especially those high school friendships, that maybe they're not always the most healthy because that's what well, none of that was healthy to do. Right. <laughs> you yeah. shouldn't it's suck like, your friend's oh, your mom, blood. Yeah, the mom will make you get a shot. Yeah, because tetanus sucks. <laughs> <laughs> but we cut back to present day. And in walks Jennifer, looking no worse for the wear. Uh, in fact, looking great. She looks great, but she's acting different, being very dismissive of the lives that have been lost uh, and being just generally mean to needy. This is when we get introduced to J.K. Simmons, who is their teacher. Like like you said, the wig is doing a lot of work here, but he looks absolutely hysterical in this uh, this rug that he's got on. And he, he tells people that it's time to put aside your teenage concerns about who's a cool dude and who's a hoe. <laughs> It just made me laugh so hard because, it again, it feels like a person trying too hard, but that is very much the point of what's happening there. And Jennifer is making, like, shitty remarks the whole time. So it all feels just very real. I think that we've, we've used that word to describe kind of the way <laughs> that they've set this up a bunch, but um, it's the truth. And I think that that's something that this movie does really well is creating this real and lived in world. Yeah. And it felt like, Oh, after a tragedy, like, I don't know, the teachers are trying to help, but also they went through it too. And so they're mm-hmm. not helping really at all. Right. And you always get your shitty ed- edge Lords sitting in the back who's making inappropriate jokes and stuff. So <laughs> very, very realistic. Uh, Jennifer later sees Jonas, the football player standing on the field. He's very upset because he lost his best friend in the fire and she seduces him into following her into the woods. They start kissing out there and he notices, that she's weirdly warm and they stop when they notice a ton of woodland critters just standing around watching them also very unsettling just all these animals (laughs) just standing around uh watching and she says they're waiting he doesn't pursue that which seems like maybe a mistake um But she starts kissing him again, and he just is like, all right, whatever. But she starts taunting him about seeing his friend Craig soon, the one who died in the fire, and then uh, transforms into a demon that lunges towards Jonas. And we hear a bunch of screams, and it cuts back to J.K. Simmons. And again, we kind of get this fun 
scary thing, little bit of levity, but then actually, no, we're going to double down on the scary stuff. It cuts to J.K. Simmons in the parking lot. He thinks of someone just being sad, and he's like, oh, yes, let out your grief, children. <laughs> and, uh, but it goes on a little too long, and so he, he goes towards it, uh, and he stumbles across Jonas, um, disemboweled. And there's a deer picking at his entrails, which, like I said, this is – you get your one, two, three kind of uh, front, back, front. It's really just upsetting to see notoriously peaceful and uh, vegetarian animal <laughs> like a deer just eating the guts out of a, a desiccated corpse like that. It's very opposite Disney princess. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And it's just, it's unfortunate all around. <laughs> Meanwhile, Needy is listening to the radio, and Low Shoulder is getting a lot of public praise for their supposed heroism during the fire. We know that they were, in fact, not heroic and taking Jennifer away from Needy at the time, but it's on their Wikipedia, so it must be true. Um, and we keep hearing their song, which is it's just, it's beautiful. <laughs> Yeah, oh yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful song. It's called Through the Trees, which is, I think it it is just close enough to like 10 different pop punk songs about creepy dudes kind of stalking women from a distance and being like, I'm uh, so in love with you from back here, that I think is kind of emblematic of some of what this movie is talking about, but also makes it feel like something that you would have absolutely heard on the radio it's just like the middle ground of talent where it's not anything game changing, but it's also like, it'll just blend in with the rest of the stuff. <clears throat> so low shoulder really uh, getting, getting a lot of hype here and we do hear their song and it's pretty not great, but it's fine. <laughs> People are like um, singing their song and like really equating it with the tragedy. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's exactly it. The the town has really kind of latched onto it as sort of an unofficial uh, anthem. I did read that the band was supposed to be Soft Shoulder. That band name was already taken. <laughs> they had to be Low Shoulder. Wow. I got to be honest. Whoever is actually Soft Shoulder, you should change that name. Because <laughs> it's not very good. <laughs> I agree. But you know what? Maybe they're making it work. And who am I to judge? Uh, Needy's mom walks in and she says that she had another night terror. This one about people nailing Needy to a tree, uh, just like JC. <laughs> and she kind of gives this weird speech about how you think you can take care of yourself, but one day uh, you'll be crying out for me and I won't be there, which does happen later. But it just feels like kind of a weird speech for her to give her daughter here but it happens this is one of the few times we see parents in this movie which is something that i found really interesting i wasn't necessarily able to really pin down if it was trying to say anything but they're definitely sort of absent from the movie at large at the beginning jennifer says that her dad is out of town which is why she gets the car we only see her mom at the very very end we don't see needy's father at all uh, it, it's it's just a weird kind of absence. It feels kind of like Charlie Brown land, like <laughs> like they're all the peanuts and all the parents are just kind of there womp, womp, womping at them. So uh, yeah. I don't know. Was that something I mean, that you noticed you have, as like, well? 
Yes, because I've been watching Mean Girls, and you have the parents very present in that movie. Right. And I've been thinking about, like, the Easy A's parents, who are also very present in that movie. And so it's like, I think you just have to make a choice, kind of. Like, are we going to have them as characters, and we're going to fully flesh them out, or are we going to just say, eh, they're not around? (laughs) You know what? That may be – they may not be trying to say anything. You might be right, and it's just – uh, easier to not have to deal with it, you know. They're they're latchkey kids, so. and it's like it is a small town, and it's like, well, your parents are probably working, like yeah, you know, unless you unless you have a parent that stays home, then they're probably working. Yeah, yeah, you know what? I think you're right. So forget what I said, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I just shit on your point. No, I, that was that was exactly what I was saying. Is I did not have a point. So, so uh, really, you proved a, a different point and a better one. So as Needy is getting this weird speech, Jen is washing the blood off by skinny dipping in the lake as the cops take away the body. I saw someone complaining about this shot online, which is insane to me. I thought it was a really cool shot as it flips from kind of a vertical with the tree line reflected in the water. To over the shoulder as she gets closer and climbs out. I think that this is a really awesome, interesting shot done by the cinematographer. So fuck you to that person who complained about it online. <laughs> you hear um, this? We're pissed. Yeah, that's right. I'm I'm really on the offense with people who are shit talking this movie online right now. So um, so she was climbing out of the water and they actually it turned into a big thing because. The paparazzi was there and got a picture of her, even though they had been like trying and trying and trying to not have people around. Uh, and it actually, I think it stopped filming because she was like, I, I can't, I just have to go home. And it's just like, uh, it just breaks my heart. <laughs> yeah. Like, she, really she's shitty. just trying to work and she couldn't even get, she couldn't even work without having people being like all around her, like taking photos of her when she didn't want them to be taken. Right. And yeah, I was reading that she was wearing like a a flesh colored bikini. And so it's like she's not even actually naked. Like, just let the woman work, you friggin parasites. (laughs) It's that's really awful to hear. Again, I think that it's kind of emblematic of the entire situation around this movie. The fact that that they're not letting her do this work and create her art. Like I said, I thought this is a really cool shot that that is really interesting visually and she's she's a huge part of it. So uh, that's upsetting to hear for sure. So afterward, Jennifer is now clean. She's she has no more blood on her um, and she's talking to Needy on the phone encouraging her to move on because needy is like i like i can't believe you're being so flippant about all these deaths and everything meanwhile chip calls needy as well so needy puts jennifer on hold chip basically says like i need you to come over here right away while she's on hold jennifer burns her tongue with the lighter (laughs) and again this is a great horror moment where it really kind of taps into something primal that kind of appeal of like oh i want to touch the the pretty lights that you know is such an issue of why kids reach out towards fire and seeing it just like blacken her tongue which then immediately heals is it's really upsetting i i mean i know i've used the word unsettling a bunch already in this episode but there's a lot of stuff in this movie where it just kind of gets under your skin that way it's not the goriest movie in the world but this really reminds me of later on the 
Evil Dead remake, there's Mia underneath in the in the fruit cellar. She like cuts her tongue with the box cutter. And this kind of feels like the PG-13 version of that. And it's the PG-13 version of unsettling as I was really upset by by that scene in the Evil Dead remake. Is the, Did this scene get you as well or is this Yeah, just it's me? really creepy. Yeah, it's really, it's fucked up, right? It's like, it's just like seeing it blacken like that is really, it's great special effects too. I don't know if it was just CGI or what, but... Like, it looks great as it burns. And then the fact that it immediately heals and you don't get any kind of explanation about it is really intriguing. I think it does a lot to kind of keep you invested in the story and what's happening. I just think that it's working really well. And the whole time, uh, Megan Fox is portraying this very bored. Like, she, she's it's something she's doing very absentmindedly. And it just makes you, again, kind of feel like this is not... There's something else going on here. She's not human anymore. I mean, we've already seen her kind of turn into a demon and disembowel this guy. But there's something more scary about the casualness that she's doing these things than um, the actual attacking, in my opinion. I think so, yeah. And it's just also it's like it is only on the screen for a small moment. So if you're like watching and playing on your phone, you could totally miss it. Yeah, definitely. I think that that's something that's huge is just those like those little quick moments are so hugely important to to creating the character. So um, it's a really awesome job here. It turns out that what Chip wanted to talk to media about was, in fact, the the death of of Jonas. She is like, you know, this sucks, but what are we going to do is basically uh, what they say. They're like, the town is upset, but, you know, we have to just move on. And they say the days marched on. And that's I think there's a great visual here where you see the school hallway and everyone is wearing grays and muted tones, except for Jennifer, who kind of struts down the hall and she's wearing a pink sweater with red hearts on it. And these really bright blue jeans that look like they haven't been washed yet. (laughs) It still has all the dye in it. It's, again, kind of the language of those high school movies that we know where it's like, oh, it's. Uh, it's the hot girl walking down the the hallway and, and every the crowd parts as she walks down. But the crowd here is already parted because they're so distracted by their grief. But she doesn't notice it at all. She's so at this point, she's so self-absorbed in what's going on with her own situation that she doesn't care about the grief. She's already mentioned this several times that she is she's bored by uh, the town grieving process and um I just think that it's a really great visual here, again, kind of hijacking the visual language that we know and uh, and re- using it for their own nefarious purposes. It cuts to a month later as the days are marching, and Jennifer now looks really rough. J.K. Simmons announces that Low Shoulder is going to donate 3% of their profits to the survivors and those affected by the fire. Uh, Needy decries this as crass. I think that it's accurate. It, 3% is like nothing, especially since they were not actually heroes and don't deserve the fame that they're getting. Oh, by the way, somehow I totally skipped this. The, what they were doing at the beginning, Low Shoulder... <laughs> can't believe i skipped this hugely important part low shoulder was taking jennifer to sacrifice her to the devil what do we get that part yet no we haven't gotten to it yet that's why you skipped it oh my god yeah i was like wait (laughs) that's right she reveals that later all right we don't actually know that yet (laughs) (laughs) okay all right (laughs) 
Yeah, I think uh, that part was crafts too. Like it was very funny that she called it out. Yeah, good for her though. She it is, and it was really funny when she's like, they weren't helpful there. Like they didn't help at all. And the classmate is like, it must be true. It's on Wikipedia. <laughs> that really made me laugh and uh you know what wikipedia is a valid source in my opinion (laughs) so i think so too but maybe not right after tragedies or things (laughs) yeah there's certainly more attention on the page uh from people who have the less than the best intentions perhaps at that point but Jennifer is also kind of flippant again. She she's upset. She doesn't care. And Needy mentions that she looks really tired and asks if uh, she's PMSing. And Jennifer has a great line here where she says, "PMS isn't real, Needy. It was invented by the Boy Run Media to make us seem crazy." And again, just very <laughs> offhand. And she says it in this way that makes it feel very dismissive to Needy as well, where Needy is reaching out to her and being like hey are you okay like are are you going through something that she experiences ostensibly once a month but her concern is just kind of dismissed out of hand where even if this is in fact the case that pms was invented by the by the boy run media it's more about her not caring about needy reaching out to her which i think is really an important part of this scene especially because later in the movie she even kind of takes it like she turns it back on needy in a later scene. And she's like, Oh, are you plugging right now or something? Yeah. It's just like, yeah, yeah. so clearly she just is doing this to be mean to her. Right. Right. Oh yeah. I didn't even connect that with the line later um, at the, at the very end, but you're right. So basically said like, she's distracted and she says, Oh, it must be wearing off or something. And needy presses her about this, but she kind of clams up and just doesn't say anything. And she's kind of saved because they are approached by Colin. Colin is the local emo handsome boy. And he had talked to needy earlier and chip was sort of jealous about them talking earlier but here he asks jennifer to a midnight showing of rocky horror (laughs) i think that this is a really intense first date idea oh absolutely (laughs) well i'm i'm curious about what you think about it even if she wasn't a demon what do you think about this as a date idea and movie dates in general well, this is this is the character that I would have dated in high school. Right. And I would have absolutely been like, yes, I've always wanted to go to Rocky Horror and would have been very into it. But if Jennifer doesn't know what it is. Yeah, she she thinks it's um, Rocky because she thinks that oh, it's yeah. uh, a boxing movie. <laughs> she said boxing movie or something. I was like, and if someone who didn't know what it is to just drag them to that, that's terrifying. Yeah. I also, I think that, in my opinion, movie dates are pretty rough in the first place because you're not talking to each other, you're and you're not even like looking at each other, you're looking at the screen. But for to to bump that up and go to a showing of Rocky Horror where people are like yelling lines at the at the screen and throwing shit at people, like it it just seems like a mistake, Colin. Maybe know your audience. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
but she turns him down and but then needy starts talking about how uh she thinks he's cool and i think that this scene puts me in the mindset of what i was talking about earlier where it's kind of this desire to denigrate the things you can't possess i talked about it in regards to people kind of wanting megan fox to fail but i think that it's also on display here in this scene pretty much every time that needy has something or likes something that jennifer doesn't have or doesn't necessarily like she either shit talks it or tries to take it we see this when they're playing with the barbies in the in the sandbox um we see this with colin she kind of makes some sexual remarks about chip this pays off later with chip later so this kind of way that she turns on it where she says no and then needy says oh i think he's cool and she reconsiders i think is really says a lot I think it's a really important part of the movie. I also think it's fun that she invites him to watch Aquamarine, a movie about a girl who is half sushi and has sex through the blowhole or something. (laughs) (laughs) So that seems like a much more reasonable date, which is the plans that she makes with Colin. Uh, meanwhile, Needy and Chip make plans to hang out as well. What do you think about Aquamarine as a pretty good, uh, pretty good date movie choice? I think I haven't seen it, but (laughs) I support all. All fish lady movies. (laughs) Yeah, it's it was uh uh the shape of water before the shape of water was around. (laughs) (laughs) I agree that that scene is important, and I think it's the most direct like thing that we get in a way that it even kind of makes you feel like I don't know. It made me be like, oh, I feel bad for Jennifer in a way because she's just like that's so obvious, you know. Mm -hmm. She also she says that she's used to boys coming up and asking her out. And it really, the way that she kind of says it really makes you feel like she feels like a piece of meat, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So cut to that night. Again, we kind of get an interesting comparison. Needy and Chip are doing nervous and fumbling foreplay while Colin is looking for the address that Jen gave him, which is in a bit of a dodgy area. It's pitch black. There's no streetlights or anything except for the one light in the house that he's going to, which is, again, a very effective kind of creepy moment. But he pulls out a Motorola Razor here, which is the first phone that I ever had. Um <laughs> which really immediately kind of makes me feel bad for Colin that he, spoiler alert, gets chomped on here because I was like, oh, man, me and Colin are phone bros. That's the nicest Um, phone he's ever going to have. Yeah, wow. Hard to believe, but (laughs) it's the truth. I liked this scene because it was – I liked the way that it went back and forth between, but also it isn't isn't an abandoned house or – house under construction or something like that and it made me think of that scene in the notebook where it's like they're supposed to be so romantic that they're in that house yeah and this one is not romantic at all no definitely not yeah he he sees the place is under construction and he goes around back and he just kind of wanders in looking for jennifer and he hears music uh, and he goes upstairs and then like a raven or a crow or something like flies at his face and like you're like oh no this place sucks and then cut back to needy and chip they're about to have sex they talk about how he got the for her pleasure style condoms so good on you chip or good on your con- yeah no that's chip good on you chip um their names are too similar in my opinion <laughs> i agree actually uh, i couldn't figure out what the other guys colin's name was for a long time i was like what what is yeah, <laughs> that's the one the one note that I have for you, uh, Diablo Cody. It's the, 
is change up the names a little more. But regardless, uh, we cut back to Colin, who is he finds a room wrapped in plastic sheets and covered in candles with I Want to Love You by Akon playing, which like, God, I that song, I, I guarantee was on so many like, sex playlists <laughs> at that time. It makes you feel like they're real teenagers and that this is actual people because it's exactly the like on the nose music that somebody who is like that young and stuff would play at a moment like this jennifer walks in and starts to seduce him he gets spooked by some rats that run around but she pressures him and we get this really quick change where her eyes change and then he backs up into like a tool and um, oh yeah and then Jennifer, like, just, like, snaps his arm in half. <laughs> it's so sudden. She's very athletic. She's a cheerleader. Yeah, that's right, yeah. she. You know what? Cheerleading is definitely a sport, and she is using her athletic ability to the fullest capability here, <laughs> in addition to now being a demon. But, yeah, she, she breaks him, like, in half. Needy, while her and Chip are having sex, starts to hallucinate blood on the ceiling, then has a vision of Jonas dead with Jen, uh, like, crouching over him. She starts, like, gasping at this, and Chip, there's a, a funny shot here where he thinks that she's having a good time, so he sort of smiles and goes back to it with a renewed sense of vigor. <laughs> um and jennifer meanwhile is tearing apart colin and it seems like needy uh sees her doing it it's kind of hard to judge exactly how much of it she's actually seeing versus just kind of like a feeling of dread because of the connection that they have but she's like screaming and it's kind of undercut because chip stops thrusting long enough to ask if he's hurting her because he's too big which is hilarious and good try chip <laughs> <laughs> This moment that's supposed to be like a nice romantic connection between the two of them is instead she's thinking about Jennifer and, you know, she's also seeing this kind of blood and guts scene that is certainly not something that you would want to be thinking about. We also get a cool aftermath shot with Jennifer where a rat runs over Colin's face and we pull back to reveal Jennifer just drinking blood out of her cupped hands in a circle of candles. I was like, damn, that's metal as fuck. (laughs) (laughs) Just another cool looking scene. Needy then runs out of the house. Well, first, let me ask, do you think that this is a better or a worse kill scene than the one in the forest? Because I actually think that it is better. Like, I think that a lot of people like the first one better because it's a little more out there. But I think that this does a really good job of kind of playing with the tropes that we know from horror movies. So I'm just curious if you have a preference towards one or the other. I think I like this one better, too, because it's just like she's escalating, you know, and she's like really trapping her prey here where like the first one she kind of like took advantage and this one she's like luring and then we see her lure even more. Yeah, it's very like Black Widow-y. Um, she feels like, yeah, like she's luring them to their death and it's, it's very cool. And it definitely feels like an escalation of where she's at. Needy abandons Chip. She runs out of the house, speeds off in her car. Uh, only to encounter Jennifer darting out into the middle of the road. Uh, Needy <laughs> swerves to avoid her and drives off the road, and Jennifer seems to disappear, but then drops onto the hood of the car. Uh, Needy flees and passes out on her couch. She dreams of a pep rally, the one that we saw at the beginning, and also of Jen getting into the van at the beginning. 
she wakes up in her bed instead of on the couch and next to Jennifer, who shushes her screams. Here is where we kind of get another yeah. exposition dump. But we get all the information that we were missing previously in kind of a fun way. I also, Jennifer is wearing a very uh, chic, ripped Evil Dead t-shirt, although we do find out that it did in fact belong to Needy. Just kind of another example of uh, Jennifer taking the things that she wants from Needy and uh, never returning them. Needy tells Jennifer to get out, and Jennifer entreats her to let her stay, uh, like the slumber parties that they used to have. Uh, she then kisses Needy, in a, it's like a really super close-up shot, and Needy starts kissing her back. Then Jennifer lays down on the bed, and and Needy kind of continues going in to kiss her. But I thought that it was interesting to note that Jennifer kind of instigates this, but then forces Needy to be the aggressor, which I thought that because it, it feels like it kind of flies in the way of the dynamic uh, that they have typically, where needy is the one who kind of lives in jennifer's shadow a little bit it doesn't feel like and she's definitely the less sexually experienced one so i just thought it was interesting that she kind of makes her be the more uh dominant force here i also thought it was interesting that there's none of the awkwardness that she had with chip i'm not sure if that was supposed to be uh her first time with chip but it certainly seems like it based on a kind of, like I said, they were like fumbling with each other. And this doesn't have any of that uh, between Needy and Jennifer. Yeah, I think it was definitely their first time. Do you think that that this is something – so Needy feels very confused to me. But do you think that this is just kind of another manipulation? Or do you think that this is something that has been coming for a long time? Or third option, do you think that, that – jennifer is kind of using this to her advantage to kind of like mess with needy but that i mean there's definitely been that sexual tension that i've talked about um through the like as a through line through the movie but do you do you think that that has been a one-sided thing up to this point or do you think that this is kind of where their relationship had been leading the entire time Ooh, i think i think it i think it is more one-sided than than both. Uh, I think Jennifer knows the whole time how needy feels about her and what needy wants from her. And I think she is kind of like using this to manipulate her. I think needy really does love Jennifer. You know, that's why she's always sticking up for her and being around her and doing all that stuff. And I think, I don't know. I think this scene is just kind of that. I think she, is made to be the aggressor because that's the only way that Jennifer knows how to relate to people. Cause that's what she's always had. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think that makes a lot of sense. However, when Jennifer starts uh, lifting Needy's shirt a little bit, she freaks out and backs way down. And uh, she starts asking uh, Jennifer what's happening. In fact, she says, what the fuck is happening? An occasion that is noteworthy because she, quote, never drops the F-bomb. Needy threatens to call the cops, and Jennifer retorts, I have the cops in my back pocket. I'm fucking a cadet, remember? <laughs> Which is uh, Chris Pratt. And uh, <laughs> I just thought that it's so funny that, like, that misplaced confidence of, like, oh, yes, the lowest man on the totem pole. The cops are in my back pocket. I don't need to worry at all. <laughs> so just, yeah, just another funny... Really yeah, it's 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 a it's a great line. 
she decides that she will, in fact, explain to Needy what's happening. So we, we get this kind of exposition dump here. Uh, she explains that the low shoulder guys are evil and try to sacrifice her to Satan for fame and fortune. This scene, I think, is so intense and powerful. So, like, we see her in the van and they're looking at her like she's a piece of meat. They're talking about her like she's not there. She's talking to them but uh, and, like, begging and being like, please don't do anything to me. Uh, like, oh, yeah, like, I'm a virgin. Please, like, don't, like, don't hurt me. She's crying. It's just, like, a really intense and powerful scene. And it's awful to watch. It's really an impressive display of acting, I think, uh, on Megan Fox's part here. Oh, yeah. It's just, like... Uh, I don't know. It's so powerful. And then we finally like they're in the van and she all that. And then we finally get to the killing and uh, it's it's brutal. We're like or they're killing her, but they're like trying to summon a demon or something so that they can be famous. Yeah. And she's screaming and begging the whole time. And perhaps the worst part is he he asks he forgets her name. And then when she tells her that it's Jennifer, they start singing uh, Jenny 8675309. And they're all laughing and and using the knife like it's a microphone. Um, and then in the middle of the song, he just starts stabbing her. And it's really just awful. And I was going to talk about this later, but I, I'll just bring it up now. Part of the research that I was doing, I wound up reading um, a Vox article, I believe, that uh, kind of talked about this movie's second life in the Me Too era. And I think that one line that really stuck out to me was they were talking about the Christine Ford testimony um, regarding Kavanaugh. And she talked about how the like laughter is like burned into her brain and that kind of dismissal of their fear and like the seriousness of the situation that, I mean, not to compare this fictional uh, sacrifice to what Christine Ford went through, but that, like, I mean, this is clearly supposed to be sort of a, a metaphor or, or an analogy to that sort of uh, situation. And the the laughter and treating it like it's just another day or like this is, is something that happens all the time that these guys are doing really, I think, just helps to cement the situation as horrific in the most true sense of the word this is definitely one of the most one of the scenes that makes this a horror movie the most to me even more than some of the like transforming into a demon stuff it's just a really powerful scene it's definitely you can understand some people not being able to get through it because it's it's intense did you find it to be as intense as i do yeah, I think it's even more scary than Jennifer because we we find out that she's like she needs to do this to like live or whatever. Right. So hers is a you know, and she is taunting them and all that stuff, but it just they're doing this purely to get famous. And it's yeah. just like the contrast makes it so much more horrifying. I think right. it's a good comparison. We were talking about the strangers and you've talked about it before of that like because they were home line. And I think it has that same quality of just, like, they're doing this because they can. That casual cruelty. So it's a bad situation all around. (laughs) They stab her a bunch, and they kick her into Devil's Kettle. But, lo and behold, she does manage to emerge. She is drawn towards Needy. 
she says, that she just feels needy and starts walking towards her. Along the way, she runs into Ahmet, the foreign exchange student, who somehow managed to survive the crossbeam dropping on him. Um, Unfortunately, he does not manage to survive twice because she does eat him. So rest in peace, Ahmet from India. Goodbye, Ahmet. hardly knew (laughs) you. So it cuts back to present day where she's talking to Needy in the bedroom. There's a really gross shot here where it's one of the like very just like tossed off effects here, but it it works really well because it's kind of quick where she's like, oh, I'm unkillable. And she stabs a pen into her forearm and just drags it down. And it's really like sudden. And I'm just like, oh, God, I can't believe how could you do this? (laughs) Like. All the self-inflicted stuff, for to me, is just so much worse than any of the, like, oh, I'm murdering this guy stuff. So that's really intense. And then she asks to stay the night, saying they can play boyfriend-girlfriend like they used to. But Needy says no. And it's obvious that this is not something that Jennifer is used to, especially not from Needy. So she jumps out the window. <laughs> and Needy looks out after her, and she has vanished. To me... The first time I watched this, I just kind of shrugged it off, but this time going through it, I was like, man, I I bet that she, like, did get hurt on the fall, but it's, again, just kind of that, like, unkillable thing where she's just like, oh, like, this will show needy, like, I'll fall out and I'll break my ankles and then I'll just have to heal and walk off. Um, so... It, it does feel kind of like a petulant teenager being like, oh, like, I'll show you. This is what I'll do. It makes her feel like a three-dimensional character. I, I think that this this scene is – it's very exposition-y, but I think that they do a good job of not making it feel like it's overstaying its welcome. Do you, you – I mean – do you think that, th- that this scene does a good job of making it – of giving you the information in a way that doesn't feel like they're just being like, all right, we need to catch you up? Yeah, I think because we haven't, they're kind of like, we haven't found out. And it's been so long into the movie and we still haven't found out like what yeah. exactly happened to her. And yeah, it's it's time. <laughs> yeah, the first time you watch it, you're like, you, you, you have an idea, but you don't really know. And so you're like, oh. So I think it's very well done because even though it is just like she's vomiting up a lot of information, it's information that they've kind of been edging you to hear yeah they've been kind of teasing a lot of it so it's it's it feels like a nice confirmation as opposed to just being like oh here's information that you needed that is coming out of nowhere yeah so it's the next day the school is uh, doing a production of whatever happened to baby jane the musical <laughs> which is god i think that's just a delightful idea i think it would be like the most messed up musical ever uh and i would love to see someone actually do it needy notices that the town seems less shocked and more numb to the pain of colin's death so she's like well no one's going to do anything about this except me so i need to figure out uh what's going on with jennifer she does some research in the school library which tell me darcy did your school library have an occult section no absolutely not um, I wish that mine did. Yeah, me too. Um, Needy does make note that it is unfortunately small, but I think that the idea that they have an occult section in their library at all is something that she should be thankful for because it definitely comes in handy here. And uh, I endorse the idea of an occult section in libraries. Yeah. She does break up with Chip for his protection, claiming that the formal dance is going to be an all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, and that she's only going to the dance to keep an eye on Jen. 
I think that if you're Chip, like you you are seeing the same vibe between Needy and Jennifer that we are. So it's easy to understand why he would be like, oh, this is not about protecting me, like whatever that even means. It's about her being infatuated with Jennifer. He is understandably upset, but, you know, it's it is it is what it is jennifer does or needy does break up with him and it's the night of the dance and this this was actually the moment where i noticed the lack of parents thing because everyone is hustling and bustling to get ready with their family needy is taking a picture with her mom chip is taking a picture with his sister and his mom is there as well but jennifer is she's by herself she's sitting in front of a mirror next to a nice picture of her so you really get to understand that she's looking pretty rough right now just for good measure a chunk of her hair falls out so this was the point where i noticed it and it makes me feel like this isolation is not something that uh, is happening for the first time we like i said we do see jennifer's mother at the very end but She's largely absent from this, and it makes me feel like maybe that's why she uh, was always seeking the approval of Needy and and kind of making sure that Needy would always be there for her because, you know, we don't see a lot of her mom, so it's very possible that she feels neglected or something by her. This is a big night for them, and no sign of parents anywhere for her. So uh, it's just a, a kind of a humanizing moment for her as well. I, I agree, and... I also want whatever foundation she was using because it was she went from like gray to beautiful looking. Yeah, it's it's very impressive. Uh, I'm sure that it was not cheap because that is some well special effects grade makeup. <laughs> <laughs> Jennifer confronts Chip on his way to the dance. She tells him that Needy was cheating on him with Colin and then kisses him taking the things that needy has meanwhile needy is watching low shoulder perform at the formal low shoulder has just gotten bigger and bigger and bigger and more kind of ingrained with the story here jen then demands that chip say that she's better than needy which chip is reluctant to do uh which seems very reasonable to me <laughs> and needy leaves the dance looking for chip because she notices that he was not around i feel like in a in a different movie this prom scene would be where things kind of come to a head. I feel like so many movies where our main characters are in high school or something kind of Culminate. climax at the at the prom or whatever. And so I think that it's a really fun, fun way for them to kind of distinguish themselves is to be like, oh, yeah, the prom, the prom, the prom or the formal, I guess they call it. And then they'd be like, nope, just kidding. Nothing. We're not even going to be at this set anymore. <laughs> Yeah, also we get, like, Needy's there to watch out for Jennifer, and she's just like, oh, Jennifer's not here, everything must be fine yeah, <laughs> for right. so long. I'm just like, what are you doing? <laughs> but I love the costumes here. Needy is in this just, like, big pink ruffly dress, and Jennifer yeah. is in this, like, black and white dress with these big white gloves, and she almost looks, like, Victorian-looking, right. kind of. It's very harsh, um, and I just really thought that was a good note. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, also, I think Chip looks pretty dashing uh, with his <laughs> with his pink bow tie. Yeah, he um, looks great. He matches her. 
<laughs> so uh, good for you, Chip. He he and Jennifer, they, they were kissing on a tree in the park. She demands that he say that she's better, but um, when he's like kind of weird about it, well, he's not weird about it. <laughs> he, he says no. <laughs> and then they they move to like a creepy abandoned pool. It's like covered in graffiti and mold. When he doesn't want to kiss her anymore, he, he well, first she says like, oh, I feel so empty inside. It's like a, a nice little, uh, not play on words, but, you know, we understand that she's uh, hungry. And he's like, yeah, I, I feel the same way. Yeah. Like, I miss needy. <laughs> it's like, he's like, she's so, oh, she, maybe she is deep. And you're like. No, she's she's a demon. <laughs> she's a full on demon, bro. So that's that's a fun little moment. And he decides that it feels weird. He doesn't want to kiss her anymore. And so she throws him into the pool. And finally, Needy walks back in and they coincided here. And she sees Jennifer in the pool with Chip. It looks kind of like they're making out, but she turns. And in fact, Jennifer was gnawing on his neck. <laughs> he reaches out. and He's like, Needy. And it, he looks very pathetic there. He's gushing blood out of his neck. Yeah. He's in a real bad spot, that chip. Um, <laughs> so much that Needy gives a little prayer to St. Jude, the patron saint of hopeless causes, uh, <laughs> and dives in after them. So I thought that was another fun little line. I did not look up if St. Jude is actually the patron saint of hopeless causes. So if he's not, uh, don't tell me out there. I'd like <laughs> to think he is. <laughs> I'm curious what you think about this as an approach by needy in terms of like the way that horror movies typically go to me this is a shocking move where so often i mean we're getting towards the end of the movie but so often these horror movies are so non-confrontational about this sort of thing but she has this relationship with jennifer and that's her boyfriend or ex-boyfriend and there's a lot of emotions tied up in that so i'm curious just how you react to this as a horror scene and where it sits in the genre as like a different kind of approach to an ending. Uh, I think it's epic. I love it. I think she's, I think she feels responsible. She let Jennifer get in that van. And so I think she feels responsible for everything that's happened. And she's like, I got to take care of this. Definitely. So they're tussling in there. She sprays Jennifer with Chip's pepper spray. And then they just have like a normal teenage argument there (laughs) about undermining each other and being a bad friend. And Needy kind of hits the nail on the head about Jennifer being insecure. So they're like arguing there. And then out of nowhere, Chip manages to impale her with the pool skimmer, (laughs) which is pretty blunt. So he must have really been running at her. (laughs) Pretty intense. But it's just in the stomach. So she just like pulls it out. She's she's but she's greatly weakened by this because she's hungry. She hasn't eaten in a while and she, you know, must, it takes the energy to heal. So she climbs out the window too weak to fight anymore. Needy watches Chip die there. Uh, then she's like distraught in bed, coated with filth. But she musters her strength, uh, suits up to confront Jen, who it's very funny because it looks it looks very normal. She's laying in her bed, just writing mean things in the yearbook. <laughs> Like, it just looks like a a scene you would see in any other teenage drama. But then Needy dives through the window and screams, "Uh, best friends forever, huh? You killed my boyfriend, you dumb bitch. 
<laughs> just so intense like you're just like oh we're going for it here it's also it's very easy i think to see this as like a slept with metaphor instead she was sexually assaulted not sacrificed and this kind of like messes with her head a little bit so she uses her sexuality as a weapon steals needy's boyfriend searching for something to make her feel better it's kind of easy to extrapolate a little bit with this analogy that they're using oh um, for sure jennifer bites needy and they struggle back and forth before Needy rips the BFF necklace from Jennifer's neck, which, I don't know, it seems like they're kind of implying that this was one of the things keeping Jennifer alive and giving her some of her strength. She said that when she emerged from Devil's Kettle that she felt drawn towards Needy, but she was she was levitating here. She falls when the BFF necklace falls or, uh, gets ripped from her. Um, so she drops, and Needy plunges a box cutter into Jennifer's heart, who dies with an utterance of, my tit. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's a great final line for her. Needy says, no, your heart. And then finally, this is the first time we see Jennifer's mom, who walks in and finds Needy standing over Jennifer's corpse. Not an ideal way to find your daughter and her best friend. Yeah. So we now understand how Needy got where she was in the beginning. She talks about her change not only in personality that happened from the bite, but also that if you get bit by a demon but don't die, you get some of their powers now as well. And isn't that convenient? <laughs> and now she can float, and it explains her strength from the beginning. So she floats up and escapes from isolation in prison with no issue, goes to Devil's Kettle, finds the knife that Low Shoulder used, hitchhikes with a creepy old man who, uh, like, is leering at her. That guy made me feel really uncomfortable. Did he I make agree, you feel weird, yeah. too? She was obviously wearing prison pants, and he did not care. He's sketchy as well. Um, but over the end credits, we get a very nice, neat wrap-up where, where Needy uses the knife that low shoulder sacrificed jennifer with to kill all of them in revenge it's a nice neat wrap up everyone is unhappy but you know what it's uh it's the best that they're gonna get at this point so i think that's a it's a fun wrap up i like the way that they do it kind of in the credits uh do you think yeah. do you kind of wish that you got to see it more or are you happy with them just giving you the the highlights there in the credits because i think it's a good ending just her, seeing her like following them i think is a yeah. perfectly good ending on its own and so then that in the credits we actually do get to see her murder them is like oh it's just like a little bonus yeah it's a little icing on the cake yeah i um, think this whole ending is just like i, I think it's just really good <laughs> i love it i yeah. you know like her being in jennifer's bedroom it looks so romantic but it's again not romantic at all she says the cross out jennifer thing that jennifer has done to her multiple times throughout the movie so mm -hmm. i just i think it's really i love it i love seeing her floating it's like just like a fun power that they're like oh she can float now and then needy is like whatever it's not even that impressive like she's not flying she's just levitating <laughs> <laughs> their characters are maintained throughout the fight which i think is something that's really hard to do it's something that i think that dc has a lot of issues with is that even in movies that i like like wonder woman that third act just becomes people like fireworks punching each other again and all the characterization and character work that we got throughout the entire movie seems to just kind of fall by the wayside and i don't think that that's the case with this movie where the, these characters are fighting, but they still feel like the characters and not just two bodies uh, lashing at each other. Where you're like waiting to see which one emerges. Exactly.
we've gotten through the movie. We've kind of talked about it here and there. I do think it, it's important to specifically talk about this movie. It's shocking just the way that the like schadenfreude of our culture and desire to see people fail really seems to tank this. It's like low 40s on Rotten Tomatoes for critic score, even worse for audience score. Um, Metacritic was bad as well. And it's just like Diablo Cody fresh off the Oscar win for the screenplay. It's easy to knee jerk and be like, oh. This is a self-important movie about like trying to connect with the youth brought down by a terrible for- performance by a, someone who's just there to look pretty. And then on top of that, we talked about the trailers being bad. The poster is her in like the sexy pose at a school with hell yeah written in chalk on the back. At one point, the marketing department, which it, it has been noted, the marketing department for the studio was all men, suggested that Megan Fox do live chats with amateur porn sites as part of the promotion for this. It's just, it's shocking to me how mishandled this was and how how much damage it did to something that I think would have been really good for horror movies. It's advertised as a sex romp when really it needed to be viewed as not a sex fantasy, but a revenge fantasy. It's about Jennifer turning the thing that drew her attackers to her, turning it on them, uh, turning her trauma on the traumatizers. So, like I said, I think that this movie is ahead of its time in the zeitgeist, but this is not something new. This kind of putting down of women, the pain that they are trying to express and everything, it's not something that's new. I think that the reaction to the movie in large is just really indicative of the kind of like toxic reaction that people have. But I also think that toxic desire to belittle each other, like I said, is something that happens a lot in the movie between Jennifer and Needy. So there you go. Full circle. I did it. <laughs> I made a point. Do you, do you, I, I, I want to give you a platform to just uh, speak about women in movies and kind of the way that it affected this movie and what you see in the way that uh, cinema is now. Oh, I have so much to say about women in movies. I just think that it's very clear looking at it now, like if this, it was made by women and it was treated like it didn't matter. And it was, there was a sexy woman in it. So it must've been, you know, like you said, a sex romp. There was one note that they got from, it was like a screening or something was a guy that just said should have had more blow jobs or something like that. And the porn thing, it's just like, that doesn't even fit into the story. Like if it made sense with the story, I can see why you would go that way. But like, it does hint there's, there's no sex work in this movie. If you want to, I mean, watch Cam, a great movie about a horror movie about sex work, if that's what you want, where that would have made more sense. But that's just not what this is. And I don't know. I Yeah, it's just an example of we watch three women. I'm, I include him into Seafried. Seafried? 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 In that. Uh, I think it's Seafried, but who can say for sure? <laughs> you know, but she didn't have, it didn't come crashing down on her like it did for the other three, I think. And. You know, they were all women who just had so much and were on the rise. And I think society just really wanted to take that away from them. I agree. It really it feels like they really took these three women out at the knees. And it's a real shame. I think we we can still get some some great art from these women. But it's heartbreaking to think of what could have been if they hadn't been excised from Hollywood at the time that they were. So just a a bummer to think about that. But The art that we did get, Darcy, is wonderful. I think that this movie is fantastic, and I definitely thank you for introducing it to me. But the time has come for you to explain to us why you think this is the best horror movie ever made. 
I think this is the best horror movie ever made because it is the, to me, future of horror. And I think we're seeing it come to fruition now if we have, as we have more directors who are just different and not the same. And so I think, you know, we, we can always look back to this and say, oh, okay, we are, <laughs> we are taking a step forward, even though they didn't let us and we're going to see horror change from here. So I think it's, that's why I think it's fun and funny. It is so funny and smart and, you know, you get, the kills are maybe not as numerous as other horror movies, but they're pretty good. And you also get to watch just two hot ladies the whole time. I agree. I, I think that this is the best horror movie ever made. The performances are great. And like I said, the performance by Megan Fox is not just like, oh, it's good for a Megan Fox performance. It is a good performance overall. I mean, what the scene where she's in the van is just heart wrenching. I think that it's important to the conversation, like you said, in terms of being a glimpse into where horror is going possibly could have gone even sooner but at least we're getting like you said directors who are not just a cardboard cutout getting people from marginalized communities who have something to say because the best horror comes from people who have something to say about society and can kind of bring that to light in a way that is illuminating for everyone and i know i'm sure people are sick of hearing me talk about jordan peele on this podcast but i think that he did a really good job with that with get out i think that us does a good job with that as well and so being able to lift up these stories from people who need the support because the system is designed to keep them down is something that this movie is kind of representative of at large and i think that in addition to that importance the script is sharp it's not overly long and and like you said, the kills, while they're not super numerous, like they're intense and they're good and you get a lot of really cool imagery out of it. So that's why I think it's the best horror movie ever made. Darcy, this was so, I'm so sorry that I kept you so long. <laughs> this is a hugely long episode, but I think we did an excellent job of breaking down why this movie is not only good, but the best. I definitely want to give you a chance to plug anything if you have anything that you want the people to check out. You can follow me on Twitter. I am at Darcy Lou, and on Instagram, I have a movie show. If you are in Dallas, uh, we perform at the Texas Theater. We're called the Movie Lakers Guild. You can find us at Movie Lakers Guild. And Darcy is absolutely hilarious. Um, so I highly endorse going to check out the Movie Lakers, and uh, you know, definitely give them a watch if you're in the area. Um, as far as me, you can find me on Twitter at Gerg Hef, and uh, you can find the show on Twitter at Little Horror PHL. Let us know if you skipped this movie the first time, if you kind of fell prey to the marketing. I know that I did, and people who missed it the first time should definitely go and check it out. I would love to hear from people who who overlooked this movie and are just getting a chance to kind of absorb it now. So if that's you, let me know and what you thought of the movie. Thanks again for listening uh, to this very long episode. And thanks again, Darcy, for joining me on it. Thank Bye, you. everyone.